God bless you. Turn to somebody and tell them it's going to be good tonight. The word is always good. Tonight we're going from the cross to the crown. And boy, wasn't, how many of you were in the second service Sunday? How many in the first service? Where, where were the rest of you? I'm glad I got you tonight. No. How many in the first service? Well, first service was great. It, it, it's always good. Second service, we had just this huge harvest of people coming to the Lord. I mean, from stem to stern, all across the stage. And it was a beautiful thing. That's why we're here. All right? But you know what did it? We talked about the cross. That's what did it. So let's look here. Last time we saw in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, that Jesus was on equal footing with God. Therefore, he did not consider it to be robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was God. We have that, right? Not just a good man, he was God. No other one like him in the history of the world. Jesus was God and is God. So, saw that last time. Now, yet in his great condescension, Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. God not only came to earth to be a man, but became a servant. That's incredible. But it goes further. He was made in the likeness of men, and he was obedient all the way to his death on the cross, allowing the very creatures he created to beat him, whip him, abuse him, and crucify him to redeem us. It's too much. It's too much. Though the cross was a living horror from beginning to end, the worst part for Jesus was, quote, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. That was the worst part for him. Because when that sin of ours was laid on him, And he came under judgment and took essentially the rap for us. There was a moment when he was separated from God the Father. When that happened, church, listen carefully now. He did not become a sinner. He took our sin on him as a sacrificed lamb. But he did not become a sinner. And he never lost one thimbleful of his deity. He vicariously took our sin. And so God, he who knew no sin, was made to be sin. That's not telling us he became a sinner. It means he became the sin sacrifice. Jesus never experienced a fallen nature. He never lost his deity. He was never for one moment in time a genuine sinner. It was all vicarious. It was imputation. God imputed our sin to him and imputed his righteousness to us. And that's what happened. But he remained deity. He remained all God the entire time. It was then that the dreadful cry came out of the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that moment. Now, when I read the Apostle Paul, of course, who was moved on by the Holy Spirit, and what he wrote was breathed out by the Spirit of God. But when I read the Apostle Paul, I realize he could not get over Christ's death on the cross in a good way, in a this blows my mind kind of way. He thought of it continuously. The the sheer magnitude of it filled his mind. He was captivated by the cross. It was just, it was one of those things where you, you, you look at it 
and you, and you start to get it, and then it seems too much to really understand that God could become a man and then a servant and then go all the way to the cross and die for our sins, that horrific death. You look at that, and, and then on that cross, God imputed your sins and my sins to his son. You think about that, really ponder it, and it pops the cork. Now, with his Bible open before him, he could grasp some of the meaning of the cross, but the wonder of it was beyond him, and it's beyond me. And it would be beyond you as well if you just stop and think about what we're really saying when we tell people, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. Now, this time we're going to look at Jesus' awesome exaltation. He went as low as you can go. Now, after going that low, servant, manhood, servanthood, death on the cross, now comes an incredible exaltation. Verse 9 of chapter 2 in Philippians says, Therefore, you know what a therefore is? When you see a therefore, you look and see what it's there for. It's a connecting word. When you see, therefore, it's connecting one thought to another in light of his incredible condescension, the incredible humility, the incredible price he paid. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name that is named. Now, we must never leave Jesus on the cross. Now, I preach the cross. And I will always preach the cross. And when you, I've found when you preach the cross, people respond. There is something in the heart of people that responds to that because they know intuitively that it's true. I'll always preach the cross, but we've got to be careful in church. We don't leave him on the cross. Easter cometh. Good Friday was an incredible day. Thank God for Good Friday, but Easter cometh. Now, while we preach the cross at all times to all men, we must also remember he's no longer in the cradle like we put him in Christmas, and he's no longer on the cross. Calvary was not the end of the story. God has highly exalted him. He has highly exalted him. God has no intention of letting the cross be the last word in the record of the way people treat his son and remember his son. I, th I like crucifixes. I wish there was some symbol you could get that showed him coming out of the grave. Wear that around for a while. Let somebody say, what's that? Oh, the cross wasn't the end. Three days later, he got up. All right. He's the Lord from heaven. He is the God over all. Blessed forevermore. He arrived on earth as the sacrificed lamb, but he's going to return as the lion of Judah. That's a fact. There is no name like the name of Jesus. Demons tremble at the sound of his name. The heart of the weak leaps with fresh courage at the name of Jesus. Hope shatters the darkness of despair at the mere mention of his name. If you think his name's no different from others, next time you're in an elevator, just say, isn't Jesus good? 
You could say anything else. Oh, yeah, cool, yeah. But you say, isn't Jesus good? You send shockwaves. They're hitting, they're hitting the nearest floor because Jesus has power. The name of Jesus has power. Now, he has been given a name above all other names in heaven. Now, here's what Paul says. He's been given the highest name of all other names in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Verses 10 and 11 He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Think about now. There's nothing left after those three. Whatever is in heaven, whatever is on earth, whatever is under the earth, any creature with intelligence is going to bow the knee. And then he says, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. Now, this is prophetic. I want you to catch this is prophecy. Paul is telling us, guess what? The day is going to come when every knee is going to bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every single solitary creature that has a tongue to talk is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's, let's unpack this passage for a minute. The day is soon coming when every knee will bow at the name of Jesus, says Paul. First, the knees of those in heaven shall bow. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, we know that heaven is the eternal abode of God. It's where God dwells. God is a spirit. He doesn't have flesh like you and me. And he dwells in a place called heaven. The third heaven, actually, where his will is perfectly done. 1 Peter 3, verse 22 tells us that the Lord Jesus, quote, is gone into heaven. Remember I preached Sunday? He said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He meant this place right here that Peter's talking about. The Lord Jesus is gone into heaven, says Peter, and is on the right hand of God. That's where he is. Heaven is now the place of his presence. And the scene of his activity. It is from heaven that the Holy Spirit came. And it's the dwelling place of the angels of God. As I said, it's the place and the only place where his will is perfectly done. Jesus told us to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the phrase of those in heaven... That phrase, of those in heaven, is from a Greek word meaning what pertains to or what is in heaven. It refers to those whose sphere of activity is above. This can also include the principalities and powers. Paul reveals in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Wicked spirits who, who have activity, who execute activity in heavenly spheres. This is the warfare that we deal with all the time when we fast, when we pray, when we call out on God. Many times there is warfare in those heavenly places, in the high places where demon spirits are active. And the scripture reveals that there are times when The angels of God do battle with the demon spirits in those high places. And we call it spiritual warfare. 
It's very, very real. Now, it is in the high places where the spiritual hosts of wickedness also manifest themselves. So the message is that all of those whose realm is high above the earth, whether they be good or whether they be bad, will bend the knee to him. Angels and archangels, cherubim and seraphim, thrones and dominions, the heavenly hosts who love and serve him, worship in adoration at his feet, wait on his words and rush to do his bidding. And this also means that all of the fallen hosts will bow to him. Those who today are the dark inhabitants of the heavenlies. Satan and his angels, demons, evil spirits, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world. All will bow. They will bow at the name of Jesus. And guess what? Satan is going to have to say, are you ready? He is Lord. That's what he's saying here. Every demon spirit that ever harassed you, tormented you, oppressed you is going to have to say, he is Lord. That's what he's telling us right here. And this is not a fairy tale or Mother's Grimm or, uh, you know, Aesop's Fables. It's not any of that. This is revelation by the Holy Ghost who gave us the Word of God and told us that these things are so. The veil was lifted by the revelation of God's Scriptures, and we see beyond the veil into another world. And that world is going to bow the knee. Archangels, Michael, Gabriel are going to bow. The angels, the lesser angels are going to bow. Cherubim, seraphim are going to bow at the name of Jesus. Now, Paul next includes things in earth. Think of it. Our good old planet. The masses of mankind today have no thought of Jesus. Most people that wake up on planet earth have no thought of Jesus. The majority. Jesus said so. Broad is the gate, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Jesus said so. So most people today will wake up with no thought of Jesus. They don't worship him. They don't love him. It's not in their heart to do so. They give to him no homage at all. Millions are enslaved who wake up today by the soul-destroying systems of communism, humanism, and false religions, but a change is coming. Says the Word of God. One day every man, every woman, and every child down here on this planet will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every solitary knee will bow down to Him. I, listen, and, and I fear either you're going to be on the good side or the bad side of that day. The Christ rejecting millions in the great tribulation period who have been branded with the mark of the beast will bend the knee before him prior to being banished forever from his presence when he returns and stops the war of Armageddon with the word of his mouth and all of the hosts, all of the armies, all of the multitudes gathered in the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Armageddon, in the valley of Megiddo to do battle We'll look up and see him. And it'll be eternally too late. And they must bow the knee and say, he is Lord. What a day. What a day. Amen. Flip it for me there, will you, Tyler? Thank you.
Now, finally, Paul includes things under the earth, the dead. Think about that. The dead, the unsaved dead. Who's that talking about? Things under the earth will be raised, summoned to the great white throne and made to bow the knee. All of the totalitarian despots who destroyed the lives of millions will come before him. I'm telling you, God's word tells us Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Pol Pot, all of the Roman Caesars who persecuted the church and trampled underfoot God's people, all shall be there and bow the knee and confess that he is Lord. Those who spawn devilish false doctrines, destructive godless philosophies, and lying ideologies will be brought before him and shall bow the knee and say he is Lord. Those who hated Christ will be there. John puts it this way. The fearful, the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars will be there. They'll bow their knee, and they will say, He is the Christ. He is the Lord. They'll say it, and then if they were not right with him, they will be told, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, Paul goes on to tell us that there shall be a universal confession. We already said it. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word translated confess here means to confess openly. It means to agree with someone. Okay? The day shall come when all created intelligences will have to agree with God that what he has done in exalting his son to the highest pinnacle of power was right and good and just. So we see here that either we will confess Jesus as God's Christ on earth resulting in salvation or we must confess him as the Christ in our damnation. And now what it says, now we're not here to make the word say something we wanted to say. We're here to exegete, not eisegete. You know what exegete is? It's what you, when you pull out of the text what God intended to say. Eisegesis is when you read into it what you wish it said. We're not here to read into it what we wish it said. Because if I could re redo it, I wouldn't want anybody to go to hell. I wouldn't want anybody to be lost eternally. I can't even wrap my mind around that. But we're here to exegete, pull out, extract from the Word of God what it says. And this is what it says. And it's very, very, very sobering. Bow now or bow later. Confess now or confess later. But you will confess one day. All of this will be done, quote, to the glory of God the Father. Do you know that God does all things for his own glory? As every knee bows and every tongue confesses the lordship of Christ, the universe is going to erupt in thunderous praise to God from every creature created from his almighty hands. And they're going to say, you did well. The judge of all the earth did right. And we praise you for sending your son. We worship the true savior, the Messiah of God, the soon coming king, the judge. Amen. Can we just lift our hands and thank the Lord for his goodness and his mercy before we continue tonight? Lord, we just thank you that you're a good God. 
You're a mighty God. You're a powerful God. Thank you, Lord, that your grace touched us where we have said you are Lord and bowed the knee here in this life. Thank you for your salvation and your amazing grace. And we pray you will grace this church and empower this church to take this gospel to the four corners of the earth that many thousands and even millions will be spared such a horrific judgment. Lord, bless us and grace us to do it. And we give you praise for your goodness tonight. Give him a hand. That's it. Amen. 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 Now, as is his usual way, Paul takes us from the heights of the supernatural to the day-to-day practical side of Christian living. You know, he'll take you way up there into the heavenlies and cherubim and seraphim and angels and eternity and judgment and the great white throne and the millennium and all of that. And then he'll bring you down and say, now what are you going to do with what you just heard? How are you going to live? How shall we live in light of what we just heard? Paul always does that. Now look at what he says in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, uh, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now in my presence, or I'm sorry, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Read the next part with me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, wait a minute. I'm confused because it says we're not saved by works. How in the world can I work out my salvation? I'm not supposed to. I'm saved by grace, right? Now, here's what he's saying to them. I'm no longer with you. So you're going to have to find and follow God's will on your own. In other words, you're going to have to grow up because I'm not here anymore. So you're going to have to seek the Lord yourself and find his will, and you're going to have to begin to grow up on your own. It's like the, the bird that kicks that little chick out of the nest. It says, fly or die. And that's just the way God created them. That mama kicks that little baby out and it flies or it crashes. Do you know that God does that with you and me? He'll do some things when you're first saved. But the day will come, he'll say, now it's time for you to grow up. So walk in faith. Take some lumps. Learn not to get mad. Learn to be thankful. We're going to look at some things he's going to tell him. But Paul says... I want you to find out the the will of God for your life and begin to seek it and do it and do it with fear and trembling. And that's how you're to work out your salvation in humility. Like, oh God, help me. Here we go. I'm going to learn to walk this walk. I'm not just waiting to go to heaven. I'm going to learn to walk as a mature man, a mature woman of faith on this earth. I'm going to learn to walk with him until the fullness of the stature of Christ is grown and birthed in me. I'm not going to stay a baby the rest of my life. I'm not going to have pastor and the elders changing my diapers when I'm 30 years old. Okay? I'm going to grow up. That's what he's saying to them. Now say with me, salvation is a gift. It's not earned by any effort of, our, of ours at all. But Paul is not contradicting the message of grace, which was his theme song. It might help our understanding if I give you a little illustration, and here it is. If someone were to give you a gold mine of incalculable worth, your own gold mine, 
you would have a treasure, would you not? Wouldn't you love to get in the mail tomorrow that some rich uncle you didn't know about had died and left you your own gold mine? Now, I want to know this. How long would you sit at home in your living room saying, I am now the proud owner of a great gold mine? Praise God, I've got a gold mine. You call all your friends. I'm rich now. I've got a gold mine. How long, how many weeks, how many months would go by that you're talking about your gold mine before you go get a pan and a shovel and go to that gold mine and begin to mine the gold mine? Because you can talk about it all day, but it doesn't do you any good until you start pulling some gold out of that gold mine. You're going to have to mine the gold. Nobody can do that for you. Now, as this relates to our salvation, God will help you, but others cannot. Mine the gold of your salvation. I'm amazed how few people know, here's your gold mine. It tells you where to dig. It tells you what you've got. It gives you all the tools you need to mine it. But do you know that everybody's got one, but it gathers more dust than any other book in the house? Because we don't know the Word of God, and that's why we're here on Wednesday nights learning the Word of God. Because we want to learn how to mine the gold. We want to know what is ours. So here it is. I can't tell you how much I'm learning from this Word after studying it since I was 18 years old. I'm mining it now and finding things out I never knew. I can't get enough of it. I almost need a bib when I'm reading it. (laughs) Because I'm finding things out that I didn't know. I'm mining it. I'm digging in it. We never arrive. We're never there. If we lived to be a million years old, we would still open this book and go, Wow, I never saw that. Help us, Jesus. Others can't, your your, your grandma can't dig it for you, your daddy can't dig it for you, your spouse can't dig it for you. You've got to mine the gold mine yourself. We have been given a gold mine. It's our salvation. He's the pearl of great price. We have been made spiritually wealthy. We are spiritual billionaires. Y'all are looking at me like, I don't really believe that. Some of you are. Well, that's why you're here tonight. I'm going to wake you up. I want to tell you, you're a billionaire. You're not just a millionaire, you're a billionaire. And we've got an enemy that will resist us at every turn, an enemy who will do his best to distract us, discourage us, deter us from mining the Word of God, mining the gold found in the place of prayer, mining the gold of rich Christian fellowship. At every turn, he will try to stop us distract us, hinder us, pull us aside. Have you noticed when you decide to pray, how the phone starts to ring, the kids start to cry, and all kinds of things break loose in your house where it was peaceful before, all of a sudden all kinds of distractions are there because the devil doesn't want you mining the gold mine. Paul says, mine the rich gold purchased for you at the cross of Christ. Get busy mining out the gold of your salvation. So real. And he says this to us in verse 13. Read it with me. This is great. You know this one. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do 
for his good pleasure. Now here's what he's saying to us. This is very, very important. While we must play our part, God will help us as we respond to his will. He has given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, fill us, anoint us, and lead us into all truth. He is working in us moment by moment, day by day. Go back to verse 12 for a moment, and you see the phrase, work out, where he says, work out your own salvation. And you thought the only place you worked out was at Curves or the gym. The Bible tells us spiritually, work out. All right? Now, that little phrase, work out, is a Greek word. Looks scary, but here it is, katergazomai. That sounds scary, doesn't it? That sounds like work, doesn't it? Katergazomai emphasizes our responsibility. We've got a responsibility in this thing called salvation. We don't save ourselves, but we have a responsibility once we're saved to work out. Work out. Now, this word would be used to describe a student working out a math problem. He carries the problem through the various stages to its proper solution. Salvation has to be worked out to its proper conclusion, not in terms of our justification because we were justified the minute we believed, but in terms of our sanctification, which is learning to live a life that is pleasing to God. He says, work it out. Learn how to live a life that is pleasing to God. And the only way you're ever going to know that is mining in the gold mine. In this book, you will find how to live a life that is pleasing to God. He says, get in there and learn it and then do what you read. Work it out. Do a spiritual workout every day. Open up this book and you read some things like forgive, forgive those that offend you. Bless those that curse you. Walk in love, put on Jesus, put off the flesh, crucify yourself, live unto God. You read all about, it tells us how to live. And then once we read it, James says, don't read it and walk away forgetting what you read. But then do what you read. And when you do what you read, you're working out your salvation. This is good preaching. If I can just say so, because it's the word of God. I'm not bragging on me. I'm bragging on this. I know that this is what it says. You open up this word, it's a mirror. First thing you see in this mirror is all the zits on your face. <laughs> spiritually speaking. And then you also see another face. It's the face of Jesus. You see what he looks like and then you see what you ought to look like. James says, when you've looked into the mirror, don't shut it and forget what you saw. But then go out and do what it told you to do so that you look more like the reflection of Jesus and there's fewer zits on your face. Work it out. Can you say it with me? Work it out. Work it out, your salvation. Solve the problems. But in verse 13, Paul uses a different word. He says, energeo, which means to energize or work effectively. Energeo is where we get the word, English word energy. It has more to do with God's enabling us than with our own resources. And Paul is saying that the process of working out our salvation, growing up in Jesus, while still alive on this earth, 
is a cooperative effort between us and God. God says, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to give you a desire to spiritually grow. I'm going to give you a new set of desires. I'm going to give you a hunger for the word. Do you know that you wouldn't be here tonight if grace were not working in your heart? No way. You'd be home watching some dead, dumb thing on TV. But you're here. You fought traffic. You came here on a Wednesday night after you had a long day at work. What are you doing here? God put in you a holy want-to-do, a holy desire to grow. He says, I'm going to give you the desire to will and to do of my good pleasure. It is God at work in you creating the desire to cooperate with him in your spiritual growth. I've always called this the holy want-to-do. I noticed when I got saved and got spirit-filled, the very first thing that happened to me was all kinds of changed desires. I didn't know what it was to hunger the Word of God, hunger for the Word of God until I got saved, to thirst for the things of God until I got saved. All of a sudden, I had these different desires to seek Him, to grow in Him, to know Him, to draw near to Him, to learn this book, to serve Him, to reach people to pray, to be in his presence, to be around other believers for fellowship. Where'd all that come from? I'm going to give you the desire to will and to do of my good pleasure. And what I ask of you is you cooperate with me. And that means discipline. You cooperate with me. I seek God because he's planted the desire to do so. I read his word because he's given me the hunger and the thirst to do so. What about you? It's powerful stuff, y'all. You say to me, you're saved. I'll say to you, show me your changed desires. Because God will cause you to hate what you used to love. And love what you used to hate. I used to see, you know, Bibles, those black, boring books called Bibles and think, and all the these and thous and wouldas and shouldas and couldas. And I used to look at that and go, who in the world could ever get into that? But then I got saved and I opened up that book and I opened the book of Romans and it just screeched at me and spoke to me and called me and fed me. Used to like to run with the people that smoked, drank, and chewed. Then I wanted to run with the children of God. And I started loving the fellowship of the saints instead of the world. I used to, get, used to love being in the world, but now I love being around God's people, and I get grieved when I'm out there in that world. He changes your desires. That's the work of grace, the want to do. That's what God does. Now next, Paul turns from what we should seek to what we should shun. And we're going to close with this. Do all things without what, everybody? Complaining, Complaining and disputing. Uh-oh, now he's going to meddle. Don't complain, says Paul, and don't murmur. Now let me talk to you about this because your spiritual life can rise or fall on this. We're going to close with this verse. I hear some of you going, oh no, he's going where I really don't want to go tonight. I'm going to close with this. Let's let the Spirit of God talk to us. Murmuring arises out of a discontented soul. Murmuring comes when we don't get our way. 
And rather than trust and thank God, we turn to murmuring. Rather than saying, Lord, I sure don't have what I want. Things look kind of dry right now, and I'm really in a struggle. But I know this, I'm going to praise you anyway, and I'm not going to lose my praise. And I'm not going to turn to a murmuring heart and a murmuring tongue, because I know that's not going to get me anywhere. When you do that, you're starting to grow up. You're working out. Murmuring buried an entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness. That blows my mind. Robbing them of their inheritance in God. The whole generation died from unbelief and a murmuring spirit and a murmuring tongue. Murmurings were beginning to creep into the Philippian church. So Paul moved in quickly to nip it. If not careful, murmuring can become an ingrained and bittering habit. You ever hung around a murmurer, a complainer? They didn't see any good in anything. You go to pick them up, take them to work, and they murmur all the way. Have you ever been trapped around a murmurer? You kind of no way out. Don't look at your spouse. Look right up at me. I don't want any trouble on the way home. But listen to me now. Have you ever been around? They drain you dry. You get around them. Well, this isn't going right, and that's not going right, and -and so-and-so really did me wrong, and this and that and the other, and blah, blah, blah. Finally, you want to say, do you trust God? Because your tongue is becoming a shovel, and it's digging your own grave six feet down. We can't murmur. Paul cared enough to write this in. What kicked off the entire letter to the Philippians was these women who were murmuring in the church. Now, it could have been men. I'm not against the women. I'm just telling you it was women in Philippians. That's who it was. He names them. Don't get mad at me, ladies. Ooh, I just felt something when I said that a minute ago. He, he wrote Philippians because of two women, or a few women, he names two of them, who were murmuring and complaining and fighting and arguing. And they were upsetting the whole church. (laughs) It can become an ingrained and bittering habit. People see you coming, they know what they're going to hear. Here comes the murmurer. Here comes the complainer. Here comes the one who was born under a bad sign and for whom nothing ever goes right. Here comes the one with the violin glued to their shoulder. Here they come with their song. Nobody's seen the trouble I've seen. Here they come. And and you get to where you really want to run. Can't you get another ride? Can we work out a carpool where I've got you once a week instead of every day? And very few things will destroy the joy of the Lord, which is what this letter is all about, more than a murmuring tongue. It's the opposite of being thankful. Paul tells us at the close of this letter in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice, read it with me, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. How often? Always. Have you ever tried that? Rejoice in the Lord some of the time. Rejoice in the Lord when things go right. That's not what it says. It says, always. And again, I say, in case you didn't get it the first time, rejoice. He did not say, murmur in the Lord always. And again I say, murmur. He said, rejoice. Now here's a final thought. We're going to close with this. Can we stand together? 
Now, how many of you know that that rejoicing is not going to come put you in a headlock and make you rejoice? Some of us have that attitude. I'm going to wait till it falls on me. And when it falls on me, I'll rejoice. He's telling you to make a decision and be a rejoicer instead of a murmurer. That's what he's telling you. To maintain the joy of the Lord, we must shun a murmuring tongue. And remember instead to trust God with your circumstances and be thankful. Father, we come to you tonight. You took us from the heights, Lord, right down into day-to-day living. And this is where we live. We either choose, Lord, to murmur and complain or to rejoice and be thankful. It's a choice. And Lord, we know that it's real because we've experienced both. And we ask you tonight as we go through this letter, we're learning to how to have the joy of the Lord. And you just told us, make up your mind, decide, and do according to your decision and according to what you saw in the mirror of the word. Help us, Lord, to put on that rejoicing tongue, that tongue that thinks to thank, that tongue that always gives thanks to the Lord and says, Lord, I don't understand all of this, but I trust you. I don't know why I feel the way I do, but I trust you. And Lord, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm still going to praise you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to rejoice in you because your Bible, your word tells me to. And I'm not going to descend into a murmuring tongue, Lord. I receive your grace to not do it. Now, can you breathe that prayer tonight, church? Let's lift our hands and say, Lord, help me. Help me, help me, Lord, not to murmur, but to rejoice in you, in Jesus' mighty name. Oh, the Lord.